With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, it looks like a strong spring season for California strawberries, and also how the EPA is developing new plans for reviewing materials under the Endangered Species Act. But we start today with Brian German. We're joined today by Jennifer Heggie, UC Cooperative Extension Dairy Farm Advisor. And now, Jennifer, you recently spoke at the World Ag Expo about uh, some work that you're a part of that's uh, going to require a little bit of industry participation. And so uh, what's this survey that you're working on about and uh, what are you hoping to learn from dairy producers? Yes, thanks, Brian. So we, uh, University of California Cooperative Extension and UC Davis, have a project funded by the dairy industry through the California Dairy Research Foundation. We have two main objectives that we hope to accomplish through an industry-wide survey. The first is to benchmark energy and water usage on California dairy farms. So data in this area is either very dated or non-existent for California. Uh, So the idea is really twofold. Um, First, to document and take credit where recent modifications in practices have have been made to increase efficiencies in energy and water usage, but also to set a benchmark to compare future progress. We know that, you know, progress is is ongoing, um, so we really do want to have some metrics to compare to. The second part of the survey looks at the potential for low utility management strategies to better move and manage manure on dairies. Uh, This can potentially improve nitrogen balances on California dairy farms. Specifically, we want to know if pipeline extension can assist farms by moving liquid manure to fields where liquids are currently not applied, or if conversion from flush to scrape systems, such as moving to a vacuum, can help to densify that manure for either spreading onto uh, dairy-owned acres that are further out, or really, you know, another possibility would just to be to move those manure nutrients off to off the dairy um, to neighboring lands um, and different commodities. Um, so, like I said, there is a survey currently out to all dairy farms in the San Joaquin Valley. So this is specifically in the San Joaquin Valley, um, which is, of course, where about 90% of our, our state's milk is made. Um, postcards were mailed in late January with a QR code to answer the survey electronically um, so folks can check their mail or I would be happy to send the electronic link to those dairies that don't remember seeing the survey or just want easy access to it. Um, folks can email me at jmhegui at ucdavis.edu and I would be more than happy um, to share that link out with dairies who would like to answer the survey. Oh, very good. Hopefully we'll get some uh, more participation and some more data points for you to use there in uh, something that is kind of highlighted holistically from the California dairy perspective is some of the massive gains that have been made on the front of sustainability. So uh, by participating in this, uh, you know, how is that going to help forward those initiatives, those goals? I mean, where is this going to be used and and how is it really kind of on the ground going to help that effort moving forward with sustainability holistically there? Sure. So, you know, I think it's no surprise. We've we've already made great strides in sustainability uh, in the California dairy industry. Um, I think what helps is being able to document that data, Um, getting that out, uh, that information out 
to, to show what progress we've made, what management practices have been done, but also as, as we move forward and, and we get more, uh, more interest in, in sustainability metrics from either supply chain companies, their customers, um, it's really good to be able to document something to, to show when we move the needle, how far that, that needle has actually moved. Um, on, the, on the manure management side of things, you know, if, if we can show that those, these lower utility practices are, are an effective or a potentially effective means of improving nitrogen balances, the industry can use its capital to go out and, and find funding to help implement those practices. Whereas if we find that pipeline extension really isn't the answer or maybe vacuums is not going to cut it, the industry doesn't have to worry about wasting time. They can pivot looking for uh, either more realistic or more uh, more achievable means of, of improving nitrogen balances. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network. USDA's first Ag Trade Mission of the Year takes place this week in Angolia. Here's Rod Bain with more. Several firsts are associated with USDA's latest ag trade mission going on this week, the first of 2024, the first to the African nation of Angola. Deputy Agriculture Secretary Sochil Torres-Small heads the delegation made up of representatives from ag-based companies, organizations, and state departments of agriculture. Among the participants, Matt Copeland, African representative to the U.S. Meat Export Federation. From our side, Angola is an important market. It has gone through some challenges, but in terms of developed customer base, developed importer base, and people that we already know and trust and have trading histories with, there are a few in that market who have been incumbent there for quite a long time. They have a wide disparity in terms of wealth. There are certainly a lot of folk who can afford some of the best beef in the world. Business-to-business meetings are scheduled with potential buyers from Angola, and neighboring nations such as the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Republic of the Congo. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In today's National Spotlight, USDA is investing more money into reducing wildfire risks. Gary Crawford has more. The so-called wildfire season in the West used to be only a few months long, but over the last decade, fires have grown more numerous, bigger, more intense, much more dangerous, and the fire season has expanded so that... Wildfire season is a misnomer. It's truly a wildfire year. People in the West are choking on smoke and families are fleeing from these mega blazes. We have homes that were lost so many people are displaced. The new normal is a summer of smoke, a huge health risk. And so in 2022, the Agriculture Department's Forest Service announced a 10-year plan to reduce the wildfire threat, a plan focusing on 21 priority landscapes from which dead and dying trees and other hazardous fuels would gradually be removed. And so the risk of wildfires being catastrophic or out of control gets reduced every single year we continue to do this work. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, the work so far has been supported by a lot of money, over $3 billion from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act. And Vilsack has just announced another investment of $500 million to expand efforts to reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfires. This will continue our work uh, in terms of hazardous fuel reduction prescribed burn and other treatments. Bill Sack telling reporters the other day that part of that $500 million new investment will be for a new program. This is uh, allowing us to begin to expand beyond the 21 priority areas into areas which we refer to as the Wildland Urban Interface, or WUI. And this is going to allow us to help build local capacity to provide tools and resources uh, so that we can uh, provide those communities with assistance and help to reduce uh, the risk of fire 
California's Natural Resources Secretary is Wade Crowfoot. He calls the expanded wildfire investments... Truly a game changer. In California, we have been impacted. 7% of our state has burned in the last five years. That's over 7 million acres. Um, We very much feel like we're on the front lines of climate change in the West, whether it's worsening wildfire, um, more pernicious droughts, dangerous flooding. And with President Biden and the Biden-Harris administration, we have had a true partner to protect Californians and Americans from these climate risks. And Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says these investments will pay off with a big return. The return on investment is, is safer communities. It's protected watersheds. It's uh, miles of power lines that are under less risk. And he says the hazardous fuel being removed from forests can be used to make many new products. Which is obviously a job creator and obviously an opportunity for this hazardous fuel to be used in in a positive and proactive way. Vilsack said the job of reducing wildfire risk is going to take several years. He hopes Congress will act on the budget to ensure steady funding for those years to come. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. In today's Livestock News, a report gives a snapshot of 2023's U.S. lamb market. Last year saw the smallest lamb crop on record with just 3.03 million head, but there were also some bright spots related to lamb imports and pricing. That's according to the 2023 Sheep Industry Review, a checkoff-funded report commissioned by the American Lamb Board and compiled by the American Sheep Industry Association. Last year saw a decline in inventory at all levels, says ALB Chair Jeff Ebert. However, producers did feel a bit of relief with significant decrease in imported lamb and mutton, improved drought conditions in most areas, a slight decline in production cost, and relatively high slaughter and retail prices. Breeding sheep declined by 2% to 3.67 million head, Market lambs were down 24,000 head to 1.28 million, and the total lamb crop was down to 3.03 million head, the smallest on record. Feedlot supplies were also down last year because of smaller lamb crops. In other livestock news, after last month's cattle inventory report, this month's cattle on feed report is not too surprising. USDA's Gary Crawford has more. A pretty large decline in the number of cattle going into feedlots last month. USDA reports placements were almost 1.8 million head. That's down 7% from January a year ago. Why the big decline? USDA livestock analyst Shale Shagam gave us a couple of reasons. The number of cattle outside feedlots is is small relative to a year ago. You're down about 4%. So to some extent, it, it does reflect pulling a number of cattle from a smaller pool. The other thing you have to remember is that, you know, we did have some weather events during January, which probably had some impact on the pace of placements of cattle into the feedlots. However, feedlot inventories on February 1st were still slightly above February 1st of 2023 at 11.8 million head, just 40,000 head or so more than a year ago. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Total feedlot placements in January totaled 1.79 million head, a 7% drop year over year. The largest weight range for placements weighed from 700 to 799 pounds, recording 475,000 head from this weight range placed on feed. For feedlots with 1,000 head or more capacity, steers and steer calves accounted for 7.195 million head of the total cattle on feed on January 1. The other 40%, 4.735 million head, were heifers and heifer calves. Fed cattle marketing during January totaled 1.84 million head, slightly below numbers seen in 2023. I'm Will Jordan for Agnet West. Keep feeding the world.
Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour, and it's available on both Apple and Android devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. So far, 2024 looks like it will be a strong year for California strawberries. Senior analyst covering fruits and tree nuts for Rabo AgriFinance, David Magana, explained that based on shipments and planted acreage, strawberries are poised for success. Shipments this year have been higher compared to those a year ago, and we are expecting strong spring season for California strawberries. Fall planted acres for production during the spring and summer are at a multi-year high. So according to industry numbers, the planted acreage in California is the highest since 2015, with Santa Maria acreage being up 9% year on year, and also planted acreage in uh, Salinas Watsonville and, and Oxnard is up about 2%. So we are expecting strong availability during the spring. EPA's been engaged in developing new protocols for reviewing registered materials under the Endangered Species Act for over a year now. Almond Alliance CEO Aubrey Betancourt explained where the process currently stands. Developing their strategic plans to approach their review to try to make it adequate and faster to review products and to do so appropriately. And so they have been working on things like their vulnerable species pilot project and their herbicide strategy, pesticide strategy, and then they'll have a third one that is fungicides and others kind of a catch-all. These have been in draft. We've gone through a comment period on I think the herbicide strategy and the vulnerable species pilots. And we're starting to see some of these early drafts come out. EPA has just recently sent outlined implementation approaches for now their pesticide policy. So they're moving on to pesticides while they're taking in comments on the herbicide strategy, and they're continuing to develop these work plans going forward. The Canadian Meat Council, Mexican Meat Council, and the Meat Institute have signed a Memorandum of Understanding. The aim of the agreement is to enhance trade, reduce regulatory barriers, and facilitate information exchange. The MOU means to emphasize joint efforts on addressing foreign animal diseases, sustainability, and trade barriers. The organizations are committed to deeper coordination with governments in three key areas, combating African swine fever, advancing sustainability initiatives, and addressing technical and other trade barriers. They pledge to promote streamlined regulatory processes, oppose protectionist measures, and foster industry-government cooperation. Regular exchanges and joint initiatives are envisioned to maintain North America's global leadership in the meat industry. Plans are in place for a summer meeting to reassess priorities and monitor progress. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is soliciting cooperative agreement proposals to advance the resilience of California agriculture. USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service will make up to $1 million available for each agreement opportunity. Two types of agreements are being offered. Cooperative agreements with no funding match required and contribution agreements requiring a one-to-one funding match. Applicants must submit cooperative agreement proposals through Grants.gov by April 3rd. A separate contribution agreement proposal solicitation will be available soon. Proposals should address conservation priorities for 2024 including climate smart management, watershed conservation, carbon sequestration, and food security. 
Emphasis will be on projects providing technical assistance to NRCS staff and engaging historically underserved sectors. The World Agritech Innovation Summit is returning to San Francisco in less than a month. Celebrating its 12th year, the 2024 summit is scheduled for March 19th and 20th at the Marriott Marquis in San Francisco and will be complemented by an interactive virtual platform. The event brings together over 2,500 decision makers among agri-food business, OEMs, food brands, growers, tech providers, and investors for two days of networking, strategic market intelligence, and startup discovery. Commercializing biologicals, meeting climate commitments, and the integration of AI to plant science will all be among the topics of discussion at the summit. USDA's Undersecretary of Agriculture for Farm Production and Conservation, Robert Bonney, will also be joining the opening panel to talk about navigating incentives for decarbonization in agriculture. More information about the summit is available at worldagritechusa.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Funding the future of ag tech, that's coming up on This Land of Ours. The Department of Agriculture and the Energy Department this week launched a new initiative to help farmers cut costs and increase income using underutilized renewable technologies. Through the Rural and Agricultural Income and Savings from Renewable Energy Initiative, USDA is setting an initial goal of helping 400 individual farmers deploy smaller-scale wind projects using USDA's Rural Energy for America program. The goal is only possible because of President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which provided more than $144 million in grant funding for underutilized technologies through the REAP program. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says these investments will create long-lasting economic benefits for their families, businesses, and communities for years to come. Additionally, the Energy Department announced $4 million in related funding, including $2.5 million to support distributed wind technologies for the agricultural sector. Almost 70 recommendations are found in the final report recently released by USDA's Equity Commission as ways to improve equity and inclusion in the department and among its stakeholders and programs. Rod Bain looks at the crafting of this document and some of its recommendations in this edition of Agriculture USA. Two years in the making, a document recommending change within the U.S. Department of Agriculture designed to improve and expand equity and inclusion. Now, like for each of you co-chairs to sign the report before presenting to the secretary and the deputy secretary. Co-chairs of USDA's Equity Commission with signing of and the recent presentation to Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack and Deputy Secretary Social Torres Small of its final report. This report is obviously some what about the past and a recognition that things have not been handled as they should have been, but is also about the future, very much about the future. I'm Ron Bain. Coming up, the process, proposals, and ongoing practical application within USDA's Equity Commission final report in this edition of Agriculture USA. The recent National Equity Summit at USDA headquarters in Washington, D.C. marked a milestone in Agriculture Department efforts to create greater equity and inclusion from within and across its coverage area regarding programs, services, and treatment. The final report of USDA's Equity Commission on how to go about such effort. USDA Senior Advisor for Racial Equity and Equity Commission member Dwayne Goldman talked about the two-year process 
to develop this report and its recommendations. I can recall numerous steps that we undertook to kind of lay out the background, the scope, the mission. How is this thing going to be formed? How do we get people to buy into it? We had a membership balance plan. But I think about those early days, understanding how we had to do this very transparently in the public with stakeholder input. What he described as a robust process of member selection and discussing the various proposed recommendations and reevaluating them. Seems like we've been here before. What happened to all those other recommendations? Asking for, requiring, requesting a detailed accounting of the previous recommendations just to get us grounded again on the importance of this work. And we were able to push through it and get to this important milestone. The milestone of presenting the commission's final report and its 66 recommendations to USDA leadership. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack noted that some of the recommendations have already been implemented within the department and the remainder will be in the coming weeks and months. But how are those recommendations designed to address issues of equity and inclusion? The secretary provided examples using illustration of how an impacted USDA stakeholder should be seen. For instance, this commission charges us at USDA to see that black farmer in need of credit and perhaps not trusting the system to treat him or her fairly. We're entering into cooperative agreements through our Farm Service Agency Office of organizations and entities that that black farmer can relate to. And that organization is saying to them, let us help you create a trusting relationship at USDA. We see that black farmer in simplifying our process, which is one of the recommendations of this report, making it easier for people to actually get the credit that they need. Another illustration. That Native American farmer wants to make sure that we see him or her in our conservation programs, that we can incorporate that indigenous knowledge in our standards and in our support, so in turn they can be in line with the heritage and their history. Secretary Vilsack offers the illustration of a Hmong farmer asking an FSA county committee to review credit applications for discrepancies, only to find out that their body does not have minority representation. We see that Hmong farmer because we've appointed minority members to county committees across the United States to ensure that there is somebody in the room with a point of view that can recognize when equity has not occurred. This report asks us to continue working on that structure to create equity. Likewise, in the case of a refugee family in our nation, they ask us to see that refugee family and to ensure that there is information available to that family that they can understand, that they can hear, that they can read. Why? Because it is in the language that they know. We're in the process of converting a great deal of the information this department has in multiple languages so that that refugee family has access to the services that we provide. And in viewing farm workers, this report asks us to see those farm workers and we are going to do that. Why? Because now we have a senior advisor in the secretary's office whose job and function is to make sure that this department continues to see in the work that we do and the policies that we develop our farm workers. The complete USDA Equity Commission final report and its recommendations are found online at www.usda.gov slash equity dash commission slash reports. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The nation's cattle industry has started the year with a sharp reduction in feedlot placements compared to a year ago. Gary Crawford has more. 
The decline in the nation's beef herd continues to show up in reports from the Agriculture Department. The latest numbers coming from this past Friday's USDA cattle on feed report. Perhaps the telling number there is this one. During January, approximately 1.8 million head of cattle were placed in feedlots, which was about 7% below a year ago. A significant but not unexpected decline, according to USDA livestock analyst Shale Shagam. He told us there are a couple of reasons for such a big decline from last year in feedlot placements first. The number of cattle outside feedlots is, is small relative to a year ago. You're down about 4%. So to some extent, it does reflect pulling a number of cattle from a smaller pool. The other thing you have to remember is that you know we did have some weather events during January, which probably had some impact on the pace of placements of cattle into the feedlots. Much of the nation getting hit hard by severe cold and, in some cases, heavy snows. Besides lower placements of animals in the feedlots, there were fewer marketings of fed cattle out of feedlots. USDA reporting on a per-day basis, marketings were down 5%. In terms of the marketing number, you, know, you, you did see a little bit of that same situation because of the weather. When you have severe weather events, oftentimes you'll see a drop in cattle weights. Uh, they help, will have to stay on feed longer to regain some of that condition. That may have had an impact in the slowing of the pace of cattle during the month. Meanwhile, in January, cow-calf operators were seeing what Shale Shagham calls some pretty good prices. Taking a look at 750 to 800 pound feeder steers at Oklahoma City. In January, they were selling for about $226 a hundred weight compared to about $178 uh, in January of 2023. So again, from a, a standpoint of somebody selling animals, uh, these were very good prices. If you had animals to sell, which leads us to the question we ask after every cattle report, is there any sign that the contraction of the cattle herd is ending? Are producers finally holding back more heifers for breeding? And the answer... It's too early to say whether whether producers have made any changes in the the intentions for holding animals, uh, heifers back for breeding, you're probably going to be waiting to see you know, how the pastures develop going forward. Meanwhile, one last number. USDA reports the inventory of cattle and calves in feedlots as of February 1st. 11.8 million head, only about 40,000 more than February 1st a year ago. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the AgNet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Cindy Zimmerman has today's featured interview. Mark, first of all, if you would introduce yourself, frankly. Hi, I'm Mark Heckman, Eco Engineers. I am Strategic Development Director for U.S. Biofuels for Eco. Well, we are here at the National Ethanol Conference, and you were on a, a panel here. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you were talking about on that panel. Yeah, the panel was um, really it's all the parts of the supply chain um, and how the GREET methodology and how CI and uh, carbon intensity is, is, is really going to play a part in fuels and how getting GREET and all the, all the models that are out here to value feedstock all the way through is so vitally important. So. What's some of the work that EcoEngineers is doing for RFA to help out with that? Great question. Um, we had a project that we worked with RFA um, where we looked at uh, the farm practices. What is it that we need to do as a company or as an industry to get it so that we can actually monetize the farm practices and the good work that the farmers are doing on the fields to to the ethanol facilities, through the ethanol facilities, and, and to the dispensing pump so that our CI and our carbon intensity of that ethanol is more representative of exactly what's what is 
taking place on the farm and what how that fuel can actually be more environmentally um, friendly than what it's being represented today currently by other industries and even within the industry. Now, you're a farmer yourself, right? Yes. Yep. We farm and, and we practice, you know, all farmers want to be sustainable. All farmers want to do more with less. All farmers just, you know, I think it's, it's the mission in life really to um, work with others, collaborate, produce more crops, feed fuel the nation as best as we can. And so the efforts that we did in this panel and the work that we're doing for the RFA is to really take a look at, a deep look at, um, places where we can improve, places where we can monetize carbon in a statistically sound way that says this is good for the industry, it's good for uh, the farms, and it's good for the consumer so that it's, it's a very disciplined approach it's a, it, and it's got integrity in what's done. You're working on the farm end then, uh, as opposed to on the ethanol plant end. We cover both. We cover the farm all the way from the farm spectrum, um, and and we work through the facilities as well. So every part of the supply chain we touch, and we complete our, our team at ECO has the capabilities to perform full life cycle assessment of what takes place in the facility, what takes place on their distribution system, what happens with the energy that they're using? Are they using renewable power? How do you value the grid? Those types of things. And then we can break it down to the farm level and, and how that flows, how that kernel of corn flows from where it was produced all the way through to the, the pump, the fuel pump where it eventually gets put. Well, what do you see as some of the, the best practices that farmers can implement to try and lower their carbon intensity? Number one, um, yield. And be recognized for yield. But in order to do that, um, do it in an efficient way. Focus on nitrogen usage. Um, we want to be as efficient as we can. So if we can reduce energy, if we can, re- and, and reducing energy is reducing carbon. If, you, if we can reduce nitrogen, we're also reducing carbon inputs. And so all of that is really focused on efficiently getting those nutrients to the plant when it needs to as a farmer getting that to the plant when it needs it as, as best as it can and uh, have it so that that nutrient is just enough and, and not any excess. We're not building anything up. That then, from a score standpoint, it produces the yield that it needs, right? And, and we produce as much as we can in an efficient manner. Get that measured. Take that to the plant, to the ethanol facility. The ethanol facility then is also focused on yield. How can we, how can we produce more fuel with less energy, less emissions. What is it that we're taking from the environment and how can we keep it so that it's not being emitted to atmosphere and and those are the things. So we focus on CCS. We focus on any way or carbon utilization. So any way that we can take and change the way that we are handling the products made from the kernel of corn so that it's being utilized is, is really the most efficient. And for years, we've taken fuel, crude oil, out of the ground, and that carbon's come out of the ground. So we've got a corn plant out here that's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. We, we break it down, and we emit carbon today through the fermenters. We can capture that, and we can take that carbon, capture it, 
and, and put it back in the ground where it came from. So those are all the things that we focus on, and it's all based on life cycle assessment and energy and how efficiently we're doing it. Yeah, another farmer on the panel uh, from Iowa, and uh, he talked a little bit about cover crops. How does that play into lowering your CI for a farmer? It's a great question. Um, there is a generally perceived notion that if I put a cover crop out there, it's going to be a good thing for the environment. And, and that is true um, in the most cases. But there's some places that cover crops can't fit or don't fit. And I don't want to, I'm not talking bad about that, but we really have to, uh, in cover crops and in general, um, anytime that you've got soil, you want to have a, a living, breathing organism growing in that soil all the time. And what we're finding is that the more organic matter you've got, the more myco uh, uh, in the rhizobial effect of that, you've got those microorganisms that are working on the soil and breaking down that organic matter and making it so that there's available nutrients, etc. Those are good things. Those are really good things so that we've got Mother Nature supplying the nutrients that we need. Our forefathers did it, but uh, when we went to mass production agriculture, we started tilling. And we had to till because that that field needed to be pretty well solid and flat. Today, we've gone to a system where we can place seeds in the exact precision place where they need to be, and we can plant it into cover crop, or we can plant it into a black tillage strip or whatever it is. So cover crops are really a way that we can introduce organic matter into the soil in places at certain latitudes that it really benefits things. It's a management issue. Management of cover crops can go go north as well. It can be north of Highway 30. It can be clear into the Minnesotas. But it's all still a management, right? And so there's also some that call cover crops a service crop where they're planting uh, a cover crop for nitrogen usage as well. So pretty long-winded answer, but that's, that's, that's a way. Well, you mentioned CCS. Of course, the, the other person on the panel was with uh, Summit Carbon. Um, and we've seen some changes uh, in that um, effort over the last year with one of the companies dropping out. They're facing a lot of headwinds in getting this done. How important do you believe getting these carbon pipelines is to lowering the carbon store, score of corn ethanol overall? All of this piled together makes a huge contribution. Today, if you look at what NOAA suggests, and, and these are atmospheric analysis of what our carbon levels are, carbon is at levels we haven't seen in, in almost a 1,000 years. It's, it's very critical for us to capture that carbon and do what we can to reduce our carbon emissions. The ethanol facilities um, do that in a very efficient way. And if we can take that and capture it, and, and number one, it becomes our flywheel. I talked on our panel today about it. The CCS part of that is the flywheel. If we, if we develop a transport, transportation system, Summit Carbon is just one of the pipelines that can benefit us. We've got natural gas pipelines scattered all, all over. But these pipelines that, that will come in or should come in to take carbon and put it in a place where we can utilize it next is, is step two. That that is not going into the ground from a distribution standpoint and sequestering it can be utilized in places where we can sequester it into concrete. We can sequester it into different forms. We can re, 
repurpose that carbon so that it, it gets mixed with methane to make methanol. Um, there's so the so many things today that when that we didn't think of, and as we begin to focus on that that product that's out there in the form of carbon, it it's what this world lives on. Well, and it's not just about when you talk about farmers wanting to lower the CI scores, having to implement practices to do that climate smart agriculture practices that cost money, and you want to have some benefit from that. Thank you very much, Mark. Here at the National Ethanol Conference in San Diego, I'm Cindy Zimmerman. You're listening to the AgNet News Hour. Now for more news, here is this week's Fungicide Management Minute, brought to you by Corteva. On the phone with us this week is Western Market Manager for Corteva, Daniel Abruzzini. Daniel, through this series, we've been talking about creating integrated disease management strategies. And last week, we talked about first steps and choosing the right frat group. So today, I'm wondering about preventing fungicide resistance and how that goes hand-in-hand with using the correct label rate. Absolutely. Label rates and coverage is huge. You know, first, just go on the correct rate. It can provide you usually a longer residual and better control after any disease that you're going after. And so using those rates, um, rather than hitting them with like a potentially a lower rate that doesn't give adequate control, that can eventually lead to resistance. So using those higher rates is highly beneficial for a grower to look at and just lead for a better season-long control with a longer residual. So getting the right coverage in the right amount is very important. Yeah. And let's go back to frac groups. Does paying attention to the frac groups and changing them up help? Well, it's really important to just, one is to rotate, and so it just takes a lot of pressure off because if you're using nothing but, say, like a group three the whole entire season, uh, there's going to be diseases that it's not that strong on, and eventually they're going to adapt resistance to that. And so to prevent resistance, it's really important for us to rotate through frat groups or uh, frat groupings. And so it's really important. The other thing is there's a lot of uh, materials out there that have two frat groups together, and it's a lot easier, you know, like with us where we have a standalone, you know, when you can kind of rotate from that, it's easier to rotate from a three to a seven to eleven or just be aware of that as well. So, of course, there's a ton of information on the labels, but where can growers go to get more? Yeah, you know, I mean, the labels are always a good way to, you know, find information or if you have any detailed questions. But if you're looking for more general information from Corteva, we do have a website that you can go to. The website is corteva.us backslash fungicide resistance if you're looking for more information on anything that we have. Thank you, Daniel. That is this week's Fungicide Management Minute brought to you by Corteva. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halverson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. AgNet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.